Have you ever had a memory that comes into your mind at a random time and you think, did that actually happen or was that a dream? Well, that happened to me recently as I was preparing for this message this morning. Um, one of my earliest memories was going into a Christmas store with my mom and she told me not to touch anything and I was, like I said, probably about five years old and I walked over to this display of wreaths and there was a peppermint candy wreath that had hundreds of those red and white peppermints and wrappers glued on a wreath. And my five-year-old self was very tempted by that wreath. And I remember quietly walking over and unwrapping one of those peppermints and popping it in my mouth. And when we left the store, my mom said, what's in your mouth? And she had me spit it into her hand. And she made me go back into the store and apologize to the store worker, the manager. And I'm sure she offered to pay for that as well. But it was such a random memory. And I called her and I said, did this actually happen or was this a dream? And she said, no, I, I vaguely remember that, that actually happening. And what stood out to me about that was that it taught me from a young age the value of honesty and integrity. And it stuck with me clearly decades later, so it did make an impact, so good job, Mom. Um, I think as parents, we can relate to that. We're trying to teach our kids good lessons, and so when they get caught, we try to use those moments, right, to teach them something valuable. And maybe you have a story like that of when you were a kid and you got caught doing something. Well, this morning, we're going to continue our series in the book of Acts by looking at a story where some people learned a very painful lesson about honesty and integrity. So I've called this integrity check. As you know, if you've been here before, we've been going through a whole series on the book of Acts, and we've been learning about how the church can be unstoppable. The early church written about in Acts was just starting out. They were exploding with growth. And last week, we learned about the power of prayer and how this church was prayerful, and there were results that happened as a result of those prayers. And we left off at verse 31 that said, after they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. So today we're going to be in Acts chapter 4, verse 32 through 37, and Acts chapter 5, and if you want to turn there, you can, or you can follow along on the screen or on the Bible app. So at that time, this church, this new beginning church, was at its very strongest and healthiest point. It was united. It was bold. This church was expanding by the thousands. I mean, this was every pastor's dream church. They were unstoppable. They were also united. They had one purpose and one goal, and they were all working together well towards that goal, and the results of that were felt through the entire region. So we're going to look at two stories this morning that kind of contrast each other. And the first one is Acts 4, 32 through 37. And it says, all the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And God's grace was so powerfully at work among them that there were no needy persons among them. From time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales, and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone who had need. 
Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold a field he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. So this early church was united. Verse 32 says that they were one in heart and mind. There was no bickering, no complaining, no arguing about the color of the chairs or the color of the carpet. There was no selfishness among them. They had this common goal and purpose that they were all working together toward. And as a result, amazing things were happening. They were unstoppable. That unity was felt in the entire region. And so people wanted to be a part of this church. They wanted to come be a part of this exciting thing that was happening to learn about Jesus. The second thing we learned about this church is that they were empowered. They had just received the gift of the Holy Spirit, and so they were bold and courageous. Even though the authorities around them, the, the leaders, were trying to shut this church down, verse 33 says that they continued to testify of Jesus' resurrection even though they were being threatened. And third, we learned that they were generous. They weren't just generous a little bit, they were extravagantly generous. First, this passage tells us that there were no needy persons among them. It says from time to time, people would sell land or houses and bring all of the money and put it at the apostles' feet. Can you imagine doing that today with our housing market? If you sold your house in Temecula or Murrieta for six or $700,000, bringing that money and laying it at Pastor Gary's feet. I mean, that'd be pretty impressive, right? Um, verse, <laughs> anyone want to do that right now? Um, it would be incredible. Well, we think that's an extravagant amount of money. Well, in this time, this was also an extravagant amount of money to them. Verse 33 says, I'm sorry, one of the ways... Um, that we saw this happen during the COVID pandemic was incredible. I had talked to several church leaders who mentioned that during the year that the church was kind of going through the COVID pandemic, that their giving actually increased exponentially. And this happened at our last church that we were out to. Uh, I was on staff at that church with Pastor Martin, and we had this fund that would help people in need during COVID. And we had so much money coming into the fund that we almost could not give it away fast enough. And I remember calling people saying, is there anything you need? Can we help you with this? Can we help you with that? And people would say, actually, no, we're taken care of because someone from the church paid my rent. Someone from the church brought me groceries. And it was absolutely incredible. So these, these people in the church were bringing their money, putting it at the apostles' feet, but not only that, they trusted that the leaders were using it for God's glory and purposes. Martin and I have also been the um, ben beneficiaries, I guess you would say, of generosity of church members through our many years in ministry. And I don't know if this is because people felt sorry for us or what, but we had three different cars given to us by people in the church. And I'm not saying new cars, don't get me wrong. They were, they were used cars, but they always came at a time where we were desperate and needed God to come through for us. Um, one of those times was we had our second child. We had two little ones, we only had one car and God impressed upon someone's heart in our church to give us their vehicle as they were upgrading. And it was such a blessing to us. And then it happened two more times, like five years later, and then another five years later. And it was just incredible. And I think when you're 
either the giver in that situation or you are the receiver, you experience God's grace in a very powerful way. And it's incredible. And when the church comes together and gives extravagantly like that, it changes people's lives. So in verse 36, we read about a certain man named Barnabas who gave extravagantly. It says that he sold a field he owned and he brought the money and he put it at the apostles' feet. Barnabas's name meant son of encouragement. So this is the first time that Barnabas was mentioned in scripture. And some scholars believe that what he actually sold was his burial plot because he was a Levite and that's all most Levites owned. Barnabas is mentioned many times in scripture after this as he went on to become Paul's companion and go on uh, to travel with him and spread the gospel. And he became a leader in the church. But what we learn here is two things about Barnabas's character. The first is that he was an encourager, and the second is that he was a giver, not just an average giver, he was an extravagant giver. And these are qualities that we should also have as believers today, especially if we wanna be in some kind of leadership capacity. We are naturally drawn towards people who are encouragers and to people who are givers. So Barnabas, was such a great example of that. And it makes me ask this question to myself, am I an extravagant giver or am I a giver who gives the bare minimum? Do I give just because I'm asked to do it in scripture or do I give with a generous heart and will I allow God to expand my giving so I become an extravagant giver? Well, these qualities of the early church being unified, empowered, and generous, they didn't just happen for a couple weeks. This happened for a long time. And verse 34 said that this happened over a period of time. And that tells us it was part of their church culture and life, that they took care of each other's needs. So those qualities weren't just for that church at that time. Those are qualities for our church today. This is God's design for the unstoppable church. These qualities should be our goal. They are still accessible to us. So let's move to Acts chapter 5, where we're going to read a contrasting story that is kind of the opposite of what we just read. This story is about a significant event that threatened the integrity of this new church, this body of believers that had been so united up until this point. Acts 5.1 says, Now a man named Ananias, together with his wife Sapphira, also sold a piece of property. With his wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself, but brought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. Then Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept for yourself some of the money you received for the land? Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? What made you think of doing such a thing? You have not lied just to human beings, but to God. When Ananias heard this, he fell down and died. And great fear seized all who heard what had happened. Then some young men came forward, wrapped up his body, and carried him out and buried him. About three hours later, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. Peter asked her, tell me, is this the price you and Ananias got for the land? Yes, she said, that is the price. Peter said to her, how could you conspire to test the spirit of the Lord? Listen, 
The feet of the men who buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out also. At that moment, she fell down at his feet and died. Then the young men came in and, finding her dead, carried her out and buried her beside her husband. Great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events. Yikes. I would like to thank Pastor Gary for assigning me this uplifting and light, light-hearted passage today. <laughs> As I was studying this passage, I had so many questions. The main one being, why did God strike these people dead? I mean, they sold the property, they kept a portion for themselves, but they still gave the rest to the church. So it made me think about today. We don't really see this happen much today, thankfully. We see far worse sins, though, than people holding back money from the offering. I mean, we can turn on the news any given week, and we've heard of another leader falling from grace, and most of their sins seem way worse than this. But we don't see people being struck dead, like this example. One of the lessons that I've learned from other experienced pastors is that sometimes we are asking the wrong question. Instead of asking, why did this happen? We need to start asking, what is God trying to teach me through this? What is the lesson he has, and what can I learn about God through this experience? This change in thinking from why to what can be applied to many areas of our lives where we are wondering why God allowed something to happen that we do not understand. I bet you the friends of Ananias and Sapphira and and the family members asked, why would God allow this to happen? But I think we can find some answers here to the better question, which is what does God want us to learn about him and his character through this example? And with that being said, we can look at, take a closer look at what this passage is trying to teach us. So what is really wrong with what Ananias and Sapphira did? I mean, they were giving to the church. They didn't have to sell their property in the first place. I'm sure their motivation started out great. Why is it so bad that they held back some of the money for themselves? Wouldn't we all do the same thing? The big deal was that Ananias lied to the leaders of the church and to God. This wasn't about the money. This wasn't about the money. This was about the attitude. He had rationalized the sin in his mind, and then it exposed evil that was in his heart. He not only thought about this plan, he went another step and carried it out. Verse 2 says he kept back part of the money for himself, and when you look at that phrase in Scripture, It is the same root word for robbed or extorted. And then here we see his wife was involved in this decision as well. So here's a little marriage tip. If your spouse wants you to do something that's illegal or blatantly against scripture, you say no. You do not go along with the plan. So again, why was this particular sin so grievous to God that he struck these two people dead? This was a big deal because this was the first major problem that this early church faced, and it was from the inside. The early church wasn't swayed by the persecution happening or the threats happening from the outside in. Their foundation was still being built. Their foundation was strong. The church, this body of Christ, was so beautiful and pure that God did not tolerate anything that would compromise that. 
So this sin was a threat to the foundation of the whole early church. If sin infected the church in this way and began to spread, the entire foundation of the church for centuries to come would be compromised. So this was an example to the church of what not to do and what not to tolerate. And we learn something here about God and his desire to protect his church, but we also learn something here about Satan. Satan's greatest strategy then and now is to destroy the church from the inside out. I have never heard of greater division within the American church at large than the past four years. We divided from the inside out over politics, social issues, opinions, and then it became over churches, how churches handled COVID, over which churches had masks and didn't, and somewhere along that way, we all became part of the problem. We started attacking each other from the inside out. And now you see churches divided over who does things this way and who does things that way and who voted for this person and who voted for that person. And we're all arguing about who, which way is better, and this is not how God designed his church to be. John Stott said, if the devil's first tactic was to destroy the church by force from without, his second was to destroy it by falsehood from within. And Ananias and Sapphira made decisions that were going to impact the whole church. Their personal lack of integrity threatened the integrity of the church. I read a quote that said, when Christians sin against the body, they lose their peace, the body loses its power, and the blessing of God is withheld. But God does not always show his full feelings about that publicly. He did do that during certain periods of time to make a point, to show us how he feels about sin. There will be a judgment, even if it's not today. So God will not protect those who are trying to harm the church, the body of Christ. God will protect his people. You know, sins are all related to each other. Sins are all brothers and sisters and cousins. So this wasn't just about one sin, the sin of lying. This was about many sins that were related to lying. You had greed, you had pride, you had lying, you had selfishness, and ultimately unfaithfulness. All of those, and probably even more, were sins that God was not happy about in this situation. And that brings us to us. When we have one sin in our life that's left undealt with, it inevitably leads to other sins. That's why it's so important that we take time to reflect and identify the sins that we are struggling with so that they can be brought back under the control of the Holy Spirit. Otherwise, they spread like wildfire. So the Holy Spirit spoke to Peter and told him what Ananias and Sapphira had done. That is the gift of knowledge, the gift of discernment. That is one, two of the gifts that, that God gives believers when we receive Jesus into our lives. He gives us gifts, spiritual gifts, and that is why Peter knew that this had happened. And you can read more about those gifts in 1 Corinthians 12. If someone is trying to stop the influence of the church or tarnish the body of Christ, they are on dangerous ground. And if someone is trying to cause division in the church, they are on dangerous ground. Integrity is the quality of being honest and having strong moral principles. It is the state of being whole and undivided. 
You see, if Ananias and Sapphira were people of integrity, then they would have come clean when they were confronted about the lie. It exposed their true character. In verse 4, again, Peter said it wasn't about the money. It was about the character. It was about the fact that they were trying to hide their true motives. Sometimes when there is growth, like the early church was experiencing, there are challenges. And we see this in the business world all the time. Sometimes when there, are, when there is growth happening, there are temptations. Always be aware that when you are in a season of growth and blessing, temptations from the enemy increase. Sometimes we are not even aware that it's happening. The enemy wants to rob you and I of our integrity. We know from the study of human behavior that thoughts and feelings lead to actions. And there's some debate over which comes first, feelings or thoughts or thoughts or feelings. But the point is that our actions begin in our minds. We saw this first happen in Genesis with the story of Adam and Eve. When they sinned together and both ate the fruit, then they hid in the garden to try to hide from God. The only prohibition that was given to them was the one the devil used. He didn't tempt them to murder one another, surprisingly. He directed his attack at their thoughts and their feelings and then their actions. This is a pattern that has been happening since the beginning of time that we need to be aware of. God desired to protect his early church, and so he sent them a strong message that he did not want this to become a common occurrence. This sin was not a surprise temptation either. It was something that they had thought out. At some point, they had feelings or thoughts, and they wanted to keep back part of the money. Maybe they had some home renovations they wanted to do. Maybe they didn't fully trust that their money would be used for good, or they didn't like a certain person they thought would benefit benefit from that contribution. We don't know their motivation. But for them to take this huge step to sell their property shows that originally they had good motivations and then they had some doubts, talked about it and decided together to keep out part of the money and even lie about it. God did not want them to drop dead. I think he wanted them to do what they said they were doing and contribute to growing more. But at some point, they must have separated themselves from God's voice for this to become okay. So how do we avoid temptation? The first step is to take our thoughts captive. Sins usually start in our head with a thought or a lie that we believe, and then it works our way out. We get offended. We want to fight back. Someone says something mean to us. We want to tell everybody what they did. Someone cuts us off, we want them to pay for it. It starts with a thought or a feeling and turns into an action. 2 Corinthians 10.5 says, We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God, and we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. So that brings us to today. How can we as a church be unstoppable in the midst of a world where people are at war with each other, where people don't trust their leaders and division is at an all-time high. Is there any hope for us today? Well, the answer is yes, and I believe that answer is found in Ephesians 5, 1 through 20. It says, follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children, and walk in the way of love, 
Just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But among you, there must not even be a hint of sexual immorality or of any kind of impurity or of greed, because these are improper for God's holy people. Nor should there be obscenity, foolish talk, or coarse joking, which are out of place, but rather thanksgiving. For of this, you can be sure, no immoral, impure, or greedy person, such a person is an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of such things, God's wrath comes on those who are disobedient. Therefore, do not be partners with them. For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Live as children of light. For the fruit of the light consists in all goodness, righteousness, and truth, and find out what pleases the Lord. I want us to look closer at verse 11. Have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness, but rather expose them. This verse stood out to me when my kids were little, and it has been a constant prayer of mine as a parent, that if my kids are doing something that is leading them down a bad path, that God would expose that to me and my husband, that he would reveal it. Because even though it's heartbreaking to find out terrible information about your kids or, or things they're involved in, it is a blessing when that is brought out into the light and you can deal with it. It is a good thing when sin is brought into the light, when it's, it's brought into from darkness into light. So we can pray this prayer that God would expose the fruitless deeds of darkness, not only in our families and in our own lives, but also in our churches and in our businesses, that if there are things going on that need to be brought into the light that they would, so that they could be um, dealt with and people can be restored. That's the ultimate goal. That it wouldn't just be brought out into the light to shame somebody, but that people can find restoration and healing and put away that sin and come closer to Jesus. So verse 12 says, It is shameful even to mention what the disobedient do in secret, but everything exposed by the light becomes visible, and everything that is illuminated becomes a light. That is why it is said, wake up, sleeper, rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on, shine on you. Just a few more verses. Be careful, then, how you live, not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of every opportunity, because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another with psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit, Sing and make music from your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks to God the Father for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is the answer. This reminds us that there is a better way. They remind us both personally and corporately that God wants sin to be exposed and darkness brought into the light. Now, it's easy to say amen to this, especially when we know someone who needs to repent especially when they've done something to us, but what about us? What about you and what about me? What needs to come out into the light? What is in us that we are trying to hide from God? What are we trying to get away with that we hope nobody will find out about? Could there be something that we are doing that could be tearing away at the integrity of our family or of our church? That is the real question. 
I know this kind of sounds like a scary message, and that's not my intent, but the word of God tells us great news. It says that because of Jesus' sacrifice that he paid for us on the cross, that we are not left hopeless when we sin. Psalm 103.10 says, The Lord does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. That is good news. So, how can the church be unstoppable? I'm going to close with this, and I'd like to invite the worship team back up. First is, we can stand for righteousness and be people of integrity. And by standing for righteousness, I do not mean standing on the street corner with a sign that says you're going to hell. That does not mean we're standing for righteousness. I mean we need to stand for righteousness by being people of integrity in our own lives and relationships. We can also be unstoppable by practicing confession. Now, the Catholic Church does a great job at confession. I'm sure many of you were raised Catholic. They, they do that for some different reasons, but I think this is an area that we can improve on. Since we live in an age of grace and Jesus prepaid for our sins, uh, sometimes we don't think we need to recognize or acknowledge our sin at all. But the Bible tells us to confess our sins one to another and pray for each other so that we may be healed. We can also, as a church, aid in both repentance and restoration. The church needs to be a place where sinners are welcome because we are all sinners, right? And people need to come into the church so they can experience God's grace through the people of the church and be treated with love. And then they will know that they can be made right with God. We can aid in restoration by showing forgiveness and love towards those who have experienced sin and shame. And then another way we can be unstoppable is by meeting the needs of those in the church. So we do a great job of that here. I've seen it. But no church is perfect, and I think we can always improve in meeting the needs of people. And I encourage you, if you don't already give, to start there. Start by giving 10% to God. As God compels you in faith, work your way up from there. But when you do give to the church, that is a way to meet the needs of others. That, that is used to help people in need. I want to end today with two questions for you. And in a short time, we're going to take communion together. But I want to ask you to reflect on these two things. The first is, what is God saying to you this morning? What is he speaking to your heart about? It's going to be different for every single person in this room. And the second, is there something in your life that you need to bring out into the, is there something in your life that you need to bring out into the light and confess to God so that you can be the person that he has called you to be? The unstoppable church starts with you and me. It starts with us. Let's not point fingers at everyone else who needs to change. It has to start with you and me. This morning, we're going to take communion at the end of the service. And one of the reasons I wanted to do that is because 1 Corinthians 11 talks about examining ourselves before taking communion. That we don't just take it lightly and flippantly. It's like, oh, here we go. It's communion time again. Um, here we have those cardboard wafers we have to eat. Um, no, God wants this to be a holy moment 
between him and us where we reflect and we ask God to forgive us and, and we come clean and he restores us to a right relationship with him. So I encourage you to get out your elements in a, in a few moments. I'm going to ask Pastor Gary to come up, but I want to go ahead and close in prayer. And as I pray, think about those questions. What is God saying to you this morning? And is there something that you or I need to confess to God to be made right with him? Father God, I thank you for this challenging message this morning that you've given us, Lord. I know all of us, all of us have areas in our lives that need to be brought into the light. God, what are you trying to say to us this morning? I pray that you would make it very clear in each one of our hearts, God. I pray that in a few moments as we take communion, that, God, you would make us clean, that you would make us pure. God, that you would make us holy and righteous, Lord, that we would become more like you. And Lord, that we wouldn't be discouraged this morning by all the things we need to do to change, but we would be encouraged that there's hope in you and that you have a plan for us, God, and you offer us redemption and restoration. And for anyone here who doesn't have a relationship with God, I just want to encourage you to pray right now and receive Jesus into your heart. And I'm going to close in this prayer and you can pray this with me. Lord Jesus, I confess to you that I am a sinner and I am in need of your grace. And today I ask you to come inside and live in my heart and my spirit, God. I want to put you first and I'm tired of trying to be in control of my own life. And today I submit to you and I give my life to you and I pray that you would help me to live according to your word and to draw closer to you and to hear your voice, God, and become the person that you want me to be. Lord, this morning we all thank you for your grace and your mercy. We thank you that you don't just strike us dead when we make a mistake, but you give us opportunities to repent and confess and come close to you. And we praise you and thank you for your grace and your mercy, Lord. In your name we pray. Amen.